Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Most footwear brands use cheaper synthetic materials, but when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran with their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are comfy and durable, so you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where our guest this hour is country rock artist Sarah Shook. As the leader of the widely acclaimed North Carolina-based band, Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, they chat with Amy Wright about the band's new album, Night Roamer, which releases this week on 30 Tigers, as well as causes close to their heart, such as the Manifest Music Festival in Chapel Hill, the Safe Space Initiative, and a whole lot more beyond that. We've been big fans of theirs for a long time now, and it's a pleasure to welcome them to the show. So wherever you're listening from, please give it up for Sarah Shook. You're listening to Insights from Diddy TV. Where are you these days? Um, I'm home right now in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. You know, um, I liked your little icon that had you kind of with your arms like this, like, hey, don't mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) It's all for show. (laughs) I was going to say, I think I need one of those because I'm only 5'2", so I need, a, I need someone to, like, to be a little <laughs> bit more afraid of me. <laughs> so, uh, so where are you from, Sarah? Are you, uh, are you from? I was actually born in western New York uh, to parents. My parents were both Southerners. Um, and I moved to North Carolina when I was 10, uh, which was, we were only here for, I think, a year, maybe 13 months. And then we moved to Pennsylvania and then back to Western New York and then back here. Um, I have been in Chatham County, North Carolina for 16 years. And this is the longest I've lived um, in one area. And it's the first area that I, I chose to live and, and to put down roots. So for me, that's, it is a little bit of a complicated question, but for me, home base is, is Chatham County, North Carolina. So when you grew up, what, what, was, what was your childhood like? Was it, uh, were you playing music at, at an early age or what were you doing when you were a kid? Uh, I was homeschooled um, along with my older sister and my younger sibling. Um, and we had sort of a middle of the road homeschool experience. Um, I know some some families that choose to homeschool for religious reasons are much stricter than my family. Um, there was, I, there was like a level of isolation, um, that I, I think is, is common in homeschooling situations. Just, it's just sort of the nature of the beast. 
I remember being little and really being very curious about what it was like to go to like normal school um, <laughs> and to like be with my peers all day. Um, we did, you know, our socialization was, uh, you know, church on Sundays. And when I was really little, my mom started a homeschool group with a couple other moms in our area, um, which and that group like exploded. It ended up being a, a huge group. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, and a lot of time just thinking I've always been a thinker ever since I was really small. Um, and solitude and silence are both good ingredients for that. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time in trees when I was when I was a kid. And when I was in my early teens, I think I spent more time up in a tree than on the ground for a good little chunk of my life there. Okay, so what is it about being in a tree that helps you think a little bit better? You know, I, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's just removing yourself from sort of the norms of your, your comfort zone. Um, and also at this time, you know, my, my whole upbringing, we weren't allowed to listen to music. Uh, we were allowed to listen to classical composers and worship music. So like not even like Christian bands, like anything that was like adult contemporary no jars of clay, no DC talk, like even, even really chill, you know, the first jars of clay album doesn't even have electric guitar except for one song. And, and even that was just like a little too much for, for my folks at the time. Um, and they've come a really long way since then. And uh, I tell my younger sibling all the time that, you know, they have me to thank because I, I was the one that pioneered the, the, you know, this music is actually okay. And, you know, no one's getting hurt. Nothing bad's going to happen if we listen to this. <laughs> so when you first sort of moved from classical into some other music, was it Jars of Clay or who were you listening to? It was, it was strange. I had, um, you know, all of my little buddies at church were listening to Jars of Clay and like, Audio Adrenaline and all these other like sort of new and up and coming Christian bands. And so there would be these moments in passing where they would, I was able to get a cassette tape or a CD home and I'd play it for a little bit. And then as soon as my parents heard it, it was just like, nope, that's got to go back. So it was sort of a tease because I was, I was getting this taste of music that I had never heard anything that sounded like it before. Um, and then it was just mysteriously has gone as quickly as it arrived. Um, so it wasn't until I got my first job when I was 17, um, got a job at a grocery store as a cashier and all of my coworkers were all my age and all of them went to high school together. And so I was this new sort of like, what, where the hell did you come from? Like, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know who like the gorillas are? Like whatever band was, they were all listening to at the time. Um, so You're I started under a getting, rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they started sneaking me CDs and, um, I had learned my lesson by this time to, uh, to not play this music when my folks were around and, um, could interfere with my activities. So, uh, I would wait until they went to sleep. Like I would literally wait until I saw the light under their door go out and I'd wait a little bit and then I would just lie under my covers with my headphones and, and just, it was, it was incredible. There's, you know, it sucks to grow up without music on one hand, but on the other hand, you know, no one has, it's just so unique to experience music in that way 
where your your exposure is this much, you know, and it's this whole world out there. You know, what's interesting is I interview a lot of people and a lot of musicians, and I can't tell you how many of them came from an evangelical background. And I kind of wonder about the, the passion that goes into religion that's channeled in a different way, maybe later on in life, and what that background sort of brings to your creativity as an artist. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the one of the main components of um, any kind of extreme evangelical Christianity or conservative Christian belief systems is that it's very uh, limiting and it's very fear based. Um, everything is like, uh, you know, your behavior and making sure that you're not dressed in a way that you know, for me, like as uh, like being born and raised and socialized as a girl, it's just like, oh, well, you can't wear your pants too tight because that could stumble like your Christian brother could like. And, and I'm like, well, what does that have to do with me? Like that that's his problem. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? It sounds like he needs to get a grip. Um, I think that it's a natural progression to be drawn to the arts um, if you have any sort of seedling in you that wants to express itself, if there's anything in, in you that wants to, um, sort of es escape those, those, uh, confining and like rigid belief systems. And I think a lot of people have that in them. They have that desire to sort of transcend. So what was your first instrument? What did you first start playing? Piano. Um, and I still don't play piano. <laughs> it's hard. Um, Piano's hard, I think. It is. My uh, my folks had a piano in our hallway when I was a kid. Um, and it, I mean, I don't know if it had ever been tuned and it was, you know, the keys were yellow and, but I sat down and, um, you know, there would be songs that I heard in like church service that I've always been very, melodically oriented and so I could just from memory like pick out the notes and so I started teaching myself just by what my uh, memory was retaining um, and as you know years of me doing this and like starting to write songs as like an eight or nine year old kid which of course were about like God or Jesus or playing with my friends outside or things that you know a typical kid would write about um, I mean, I, I did this for years and there were, I didn't know what I was doing in a way that I could put it into any kind of language. So I didn't, I didn't know what a verse was or a melody or a chord or, a, uh, an arrangement, like all of that language came later. Um, and when I was about 16, um, I decided that I wanted to learn guitar and a friend of mine from church loaned me an acoustic Oscar Schmidt. And my parents bought me one of those old school big posters that you put on the wall that has has like not all but like a lot of the basic chord shapes. And I would just sit on the floor of my room and practice. I taught myself strum patterns. Um, this was before you could hop on YouTube and have somebody show you in a very like I'm in your living room kind of feel, you know, it's just like, it was <laughs> so much harder back then. I'm aging myself. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I grew up, we didn't have the internet. So 
you know, yeah. that was that was a big thing. But to your point, YouTube is amazing. Uh, I, I'm a fiddle player myself, and I'm trying to learn guitar. And I can go out and find a YouTube lesson almost every song I want to try to learn. There's someone out there who's willing to put themselves on YouTube and teach you how to play that particular song, chords, strumming patterns, whatever it is. And so, yeah, those big posters with all the chords and, yep. you know, the, uh, the frets and, and, you know, the fingering and all those things, that was a big deal. You needed one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Was it hanging over your bed? Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what my old room looked like. I, I think it was. I, my dad used to say, like, starting from when I was tiny, he would just be like, I don't understand. You always have to be different. It's like everything you do, you have to be d different. And I, I remember I had insisted on having my, my little twin mattress, like, on the floor. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want a bed frame. Like, I want my mattress on the floor, no box spring, no nothing. And I'm pretty sure that it was just my mattress against the wall and the poster near like the foot of hanging over like where the foot of the bed <laughs> would be. Did you feel like you had to rebel with all this Christian background or were your parents kind of, they were kind of moving forward with you as you kind of moved forward in your life? I feel like they started moving forward and taking some pretty good good sized strides after I moved out. Um, and I, I don't know, like I had always had questions. I was always the kid in the family that had all the questions. And I would just be like, you know, this is an inconsistency that I just found. And my dad would like try to explain it. And I'd be like, that's not logical. Like that doesn't make any sense. And finally, you know, as with every argument, it would just end up, well, you have to have faith. And um, that, I mean, that lasted for a while. Uh, and then in my early 20s, I, I had read the Bible tons of times. Like my family was not a, we go to church on Sunday Christian family. Like we read the Bible every day. Um, so in my early 20s, I decided to read the Bible cover to cover again. And my rule for this time was like every time there was an inconsistency or there was like a moral paradox, I wouldn't make excuses or be like, okay, I just have to have faith. I'm used to be like, a lot of this stuff is really messed up. <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah. I, I actually got kicked out of Sunday school when I was eight years old, <laughs> which is hard to do. So how this happened was uh, in my science class in school, they were talking about the vernal equinox. And in Sunday school, they were saying, you know, Jesus died on this day. That's, that's the day that Easter is being celebrated. And I said, well, it's my understanding that it's determined by the vernal equinox, which changes the date every year. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kicked me out of Sunday school. And I was like, <laughs> because for being disruptive, you know. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're 17 and you get out and you know, you're, you're working and now you're getting introduced to all this new music. And uh, a lot of people say your music is honky-tonk punk or however you want to characterize it, it's, there's a lot of genres blended into your music. So what were you listening to at that point that started driving you towards the sound that you have today? When I first started successfully sneaking music in, um, it was a lot of more indie rock type stuff, uh, early 
Bell and Sebastian and the Decemberists and Elliot Smith. Um, and when I found Elliot Smith, I was just like, this is what I want to listen to all the time. And I have a very unique way of consuming music probably because of how I was raised, but I, I'll find a song from an artist that I like, and I will listen to the song like on repeat for weeks, just the same song. Um, and it's weird. It's, it's, I don't, I, I'm not one of those people that's really good with facts about even bands I'm fanatical about. Um, I don't know all the band members' names. I don't even know like where the band is from. It's just like, no, that's, that's not the information that my brain has room to retain right now. Um, but Elliot Smith was the exception. I was like, I want to listen to everything this person has ever written and ever recorded. Um, and he, he still has a really, really special place in my heart. Um, and one of the things, what was it about, what was it about him that really drew you to him? It was so clear and evident that he was not trying to do anything or say anything or be anyone other than his authentic self. And you could hear the, the genuine emotions coming through when he sang and the way that he has this sort of um, self-deprecating humor was something that I really related to. And um, I don't know, I feel like there's, there's a, there's a strength that comes with being able to acknowledge your own weaknesses and certainly poke fun of them. <laughs> when did you, when did you actually start your first band? Uh, what age were you when you said, Hey, I want to, I want to form a band. Uh, it was October, September or October of 2010. Um, Actually, was it, it was, I think it was like summer of 2010. Um, and the first outfit was like a three piece and it was myself, uh, an upright bassist and a lap steel player, Phil, who played with the Disarmers for a long time as well. Um, but the three of us played together for a couple months and then the lap steel player was like, yeah, I think I want to take a break. And we were like, bro, we're just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at that point, um, it was October of 2010, and we uh, started practicing with Eric Peterson, who was playing in, I think, two or three other local groups at the time. Um, and we really, like, we really meshed. Our first show was Oct- was a uh, Halloween of that year, and um, when the lap steel player heard that Eric was playing with us, he wanted back in immediately. Of course he did. And, he, and he's like, oh, Eric's playing with you guys. Okay, this is serious business now. Um, so Sarah Shook and the Devil ended up being um, a four piece. And it was very, um, very a la Hank Sr. There were, there was no drum, no drums at all. The upright bass and rhythm guitar were the rhythm section. And we were together for about three years. And it was, you know, at that, I've never had ambition at all as far as music goes. Music has always been cathartic for me. And, and then when I got in my 20s, music became about like drinking with my buddies down at the bar and having a good time. Um, so we didn't have aspirations. We weren't, you know, nationally touring. We were doing regional shows and festivals. 
we had no representation. I was doing all of our booking. It was, it was very like from the ground up type stuff. So when, so you, you, what did you call the first band? The first band was Sarah Shook and the Devils. Oh, the Devils. And then when, when did it become the Disarmers? Uh, I want to say 2014, early 2015. Um, we added, Eric and I had a very short lived band, um, that played maybe three or four shows. And he was just like, yeah, this isn't what I want. Like, let's meet and like talk about a shared vision moving forward. So we had been talking about adding drums. We finally added drums. Um, and, uh, you know, and we auditioned a few bass players and our current bass player, Aaron Oliva has been with us since that time. Um, so it's been like six or seven years that he's been playing with us too. Uh, and Eric's still in the Disarmers. He's been, we've been playing shows together for 11 years now. Um, it's a very, very long tried and true friendship and, uh, and musical relationship. It's, it's so important to have those too. It provides that continuity along the way and makes us all feel comfortable playing together. Yeah. Uh, are you the main songwriter in the group or do others in the band write songs? Uh, I'm the only songwriter. I write all the songs. So when <laughs> you first started writing and you're, you have your band formed, you're playing and you put your own music out there, what did that, what did that feel like? And, and was it, was it scary or were you just like, I don't care what these people think? Um, it was scary from a social anxiety aspect. Um, I've always had a lot of social anxiety. It was very exciting to start out playing my songs with other people that were making them come to life in a way that I can't do when it's just me and a guitar, you know? Um, so it was like exciting and also terrifying. And the first I mean, probably the first couple of years that we were playing shows, I had a music stand that I put right in front of my face. Like I knew all the lyrics. I knew all of the chord changes. I did not need it, but it was like, I could not look at the audience. It was just like, I just didn't want to look at people. Um, and around like the third year of that band being together, I, I had um, gotten a little bit more experience of going to shows and like seeing other bands perform and other um, like front people kind of doing their thing. And I was just like, this is something that I am just going to have to get over. Like I just, you know, so off with the music stand that, that, uh, that's been gone for years now, thankfully. <laughs> well, do you enjoy it now when you're on stage? Is it more fun? And how did you get over that hump? It, it is, it's, um, it's been a very interesting, uh, transition, uh, I relied very heavily on alcohol to um, just make it easier to be up there. I, I, I don't like attention and I don't necessarily even like people looking at me, much less a room of like a couple hundred people. Um, so drinking whiskey was a unhealthy coping mechanism that I had for a long, long time. And when I quit drinking in 2019, um, learning how to do that job without the sort of buffer of um of alcohol was it's it's been a challenge and it's st it's still challenging sometimes i um i am really awkward and 
some nights I have really good nights where, you know, my banter is good and everything's as it should be. And then there are other nights where I'm just like, I don't want to talk between songs. I'm not an entertainer. I'm a songwriter. And like the song should say everything that needs to be said. Um, so it's, it's a process and, and I'm, I'm always learning new things and I'm always open to learning new things. So post quitting drinking and you're up there on stage, are things more clear for you or just more stressful? They're more clear. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I know that there have been studies done on, um, performance and live performance and, uh, you know, it, it triggers your fight or flight mechanism. And um, so it, it can be a very strange thing to be standing up there and have, you know, anxiety because your body's like, this is a weird situation. What's going on? And you need to get out of here. And it's just like, you can't, you know, you can't miss a beat. You just have to, the show must go on, as they say. Yeah, the show must go on. And, and the audience doesn't realize that a lot of performers um, have anxiety about performing because it's not yeah. just about, like you said, writing the music and and putting it together and practicing. Once you get out there, you're really putting yourself out there. But it's also like public speaking. You're in front yeah. of a bunch of people. Yeah, and that's <laughs> the thing. That's the thing too. Is like as far as the the whole performance goes, when I'm singing and playing, and the band is like doing what we're supposed to do, I'm fine. I'm in seventh heaven and feeling you know all of the emotions that go with the particular song that we're playing of the set um and it, it really is those in-between moments when the song ends and you know you think that you're going to go right into the next song and then you look over and your guitarist is tuning and you know it's going to take like 15 seconds and then it's like okay well i gotta say something now and i don't know what to say um and there have been times that i've been on stage and i'm just like well i don't know what to say right now <laughs> We're going to play another song for you as soon as he's done doing what he's doing over there. You know, I try to remember, I'm trying to remember the band that played in our concert series at Diddy TV, but they had, um, they had this deal amongst everyone in the band that if someone broke string or had to take some time, there was this kind of in-between song that they, the other people played and they immediately went so into smart. it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it, it didn't leave the lead singer having to say something awkward, you know. Um, they all kind of jumped in and, and saved him. So it was, uh, I was yep. thinking to myself, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, the, the band will jump in and, and do something improvisational if I break a string. Because um, that'll take me a couple minutes to fix if I don't have a backup, car, backup guitar handy. Um, but yeah, if it's just if it's just somebody taking a long ass time to tune, which which doesn't you know happen that often anymore, um, you know it's I'm, I'm I swear like somebody needs to write a book specifically about stage banter. Um, I've looked because like I love reading, I love learning. I'm like man, if somebody's got the tips, like hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you get signed to a label and put out put out the album and in, in how did that change your life when that happened? We had released Sidelong, which is our first uh, full-length studio album, independently in 2015. And at, at that time, we still were like not like touring nationally, much less internationally. 
um, didn't, we didn't really have like merch. We were, we were a baby band in, in, and all that that implies. Um, and Bloodshot Records from Chicago, uh, we caught their attention with a music video that we had put out um, with uh, Gorman Bouchard. And so I guess, I mean, I guess courting is the right term. So like they started courting us and um, it was really, it's actually a really funny story because uh, a couple years before they contacted Kathy, our manager, I had seen one of their artists, Lydia Loveless, perform locally at uh, Shakori Hills Grassroots Festival here in uh, Silk Hope, North Carolina. And the day that Lydia Loveless performed, I think it was Sunday, it was the last day of the festival. It was really cold, it was overcast, and it was raining, like that mist rain where it's not like, you know, big drops. It's just like everything is soaking and it's like walking through clouds. And, you know, people were rallying, not, it, she did not have a lot of people out there because the weather was pretty bad, but there were some people out there in ponchos and people with umbrellas. And she and her band destroyed it. I mean, they played as if it was a packed house and the, the spirit and the charisma, um, it was awesome. It was Beautiful. awesome. And I was so just like moved and impressed. And at that time, at the time that I saw her, I wasn't really playing shows. So, but you know, I wasn't making those kinds of mental notes or comparisons, but I was writing songs and I was making demos, uh, just acoustic demos of me writing songs. And I found out what label Lydia was on and I sent them a CD and on their website at the time, um, it said, this is the, the address for submissions, uh, you know, we can't guarantee anything. If you don't hear back from us, just assume that your CD is hanging on our wall of shame. Oh, <laughs> oh that's terrible. <laughs> so I sent them a CD and I heard nothing. So I was like, okay, well, I guess this is not, you know, this is not like a match made in heaven. <laughs> um, and then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and we're at Americana Fest and my manager's like, well, you know, Bloodshot wants to meet. So we're going to go have some whiskeys with uh, Rob Miller and Josh Sanger. Josh is the publicist and Rob is one of the owners. And uh, so we, we during Americana Fest in Nashville, we sat down with them and um, like right out the gate, I was just like, so y'all like, y'all don't remember me at all, do you? <laughs> Hope someone was embarrassed in the room. <laughs> Oh my, it was just funny. It was just, everybody was like, oh my God, what, what, how is this happening? Um, so we signed with Bloodshot. Um, you know, when, when we had that initial conversation, I remember Rob being like, we're a really small label and we're like a family. And I was like, that's what every label says. Like every label wants you to think that it's this like family thing, but it turned out that it very much was like a family. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very small crew of people, but every single person that is in a role or that was in a role at Bloodshot was passionate about what they did, for lack of a better term. Like these people actually, they cared. They gave a damn about doing their jobs and um, representing their artists. And it was, it was awesome. Um, and when things started going south with them, um, there were a lot of things that happened, uh, in sort of a short amount of time. And, um, 
the disarmers at the time were like touring insanely, like like 150 days a year. Um, and uh, it just it got to a point where we realized, you know, we're about to we're about to make this record and there's no guarantee that Bloodshot is even going to be a functioning label by the time we get it out. Um, and it, it just, the stars aligned and we signed with 30 Tigers um, in, I think it was December of 2019, like right before we flew to LA to make Night Roamer. Um, and so far so good, you know, 30 Tigers is a much larger operation. Um, I, I can't like it doesn't feel like a, a small close family, but it, I mean it can't. It's just logistically it 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 it's a different animal, um, and I I do feel like it was the right place for us to fall for sure. In general, what do you think a label does for artists these days compared to what I call the golden age of the album in sort of eighties and nineties, where labels really were all about artist development? Do you still feel that? part of it is is with a label or what does a label do for you these days um i i'll preface this by saying that i i'm not the most knowledgeable person about how they operate um i do know that for us um like distribution is a, is a huge part of it um but like as as with any functioning industry it's it's um the network of people that you know which is such a special and and cool thing that i you know i don't think about that very often but it is cool to think about it's just like every single person that works at 30 tigers and the relationships that they have with other people um professionally or even just like like friendships and relationships like um i can be i can be a little bit uh i'm very introverted and i can be very shy but i'm the older I get, the more I realize that we, we really do need each other and that that's not a scary thing. It's a good thing for us to, to need each other and to, and to have community and build relationships. So Night Roamer, you mentioned the fact that you had written it before COVID and um, I call it BC. Let's just call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're going to draw a line in the sand. It's BC. And we'll yep. bring it right back to religion here. But uh, before COVID, you had it in the can and had, were you going to release it? And then all, all went to hell in a handbasket or how did that happen? Uh, we were actually recording it. We were in LA in the studio. Um, I think Eric was working on a guitar part and I was like looking at my phone and it was the first reports of the virus coming out of Wuhan. Um, and I remember saying like oh my god like if this if this is as transmissible as they're saying it is like they're gonna have to cancel south by like you can't have a giant festival with like people from all over the world flying in and um so we flew home uh march 5th i think and then like within two weeks like california was shut down it's it's um it just happened so fast so it, the the record wasn't in the can it was it was totally recorded but it, it hadn't been um mixed or mastered yet and um yeah i i know that we were not alone in those early days of bands that are making albums just being like can't i mean you can't tour like there's like we're 
we're not so big that we can just drop a record and not tour to support it. You know what I mean? We're at a different tier. We're, we're smaller than that. Um, so sitting on an album for two years is like, I, my, it's really hard to wrap my mind around that. It's really hard for me to be like, Oh yeah, we recorded that two years ago. That's crazy to me. So what did you do during COVID then? I mean, just from the standpoint of um, being an artist and how do you make a living and you can't tour. So what were you doing? Um, I've, I've been living off of savings that, you know, two years into the pandemic, like I'm, I'm, if, if touring doesn't resume soon, like I'll be cashiering at Walmart or, you know, whatever, whatever job I can find. Um, I actually like cashiering a lot. I don't know why, but I, I would, for most of my adult life as, as a working person, uh, it was, it was always grocery stores and cashiering except for a, a brief stint as a bank teller. So the bank telling thing didn't work out though. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just to be clear. Well, no. we want you to stay a musician. So well, let's just st- start with that. But um, so Night Roamer, what is the, what is the message? Is there a is sort of a theme to the, to the album? If there's anything you want people to take away from a messaging standpoint? So the songs on Night Roamer were written over sort of a long period of time. Um, there's, there's a song, for example, that I, I've had the chorus for probably seven years and I just could not get verses. And then the verses came, you know, seven freaking years later. Um, but one of the, one of the, I think, different traits about Night Roamer as compared to Sidelong and Years um, is it does to me feel like it feels more contemplative and it feels like it's just like slowing down a little bit to like sort of look around and observe. Um, whereas Sidelong was just like full on, you know, insanity and chaos. Um, and I feel like years was a little bit more like polished and a little bit more self-analytical um, and self-aware. And I feel like Night Roamer is um, a very sensical third album for us. It, it's like really sort of bringing everything together, um, lyrically speaking. And it's also really pushing the boundaries of, you know, what we do genre wise. Like there's this is by far the most diverse album that we have as far as like instrumentation and um you know we've got a pop song on there and we've got like some pretty raucous uh bordering on psychedelic rock garage rock stuff so it's it was a really interesting album to make for sure do you think it's reflective of where you are in your life and being comfortable with who you are and all those things yeah, I do. Um, there's, you know, there's the song. It doesn't change anything that explores. Um, it's it sort of explores depression and anxiety and substance abuse um, and how past traumas can play a role in um, and any kind of addiction. Um, but there's also like specific, there are also like specific things like you were talking about earlier, like a- addressing issues of um, abusers and realizing that um, 
when you're in a relationship with an abuser, there are patterns that are transpiring that, you know, a lot of us are not aware of. I was a serial monogamist for like 11 years and I had three different consecutive relationships that were um, with men who were verbally abusive and who were emotionally manipulative and who were um, uh, very jealous and insecure and very possessive. Um, and as with any relationship, you know, that wasn't a hundred percent of it. There were good times and, and there were, uh, you know, there were the things that make you stay for sure. Um, but there, there is a propensity in, um, a person who has been subject to former abuse by former partners. Like there is something that psychologically causes us to seek out similar relationships with similar people. And it's not until we can sort of practice a little bit more self-awareness and see it for what it is. Like it took me, see I was like, I am in a pattern and I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore. This is not a good pattern. Um, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's a learning process. And um, one of the other really tricky things about abusive relationships is so often the people that are in them cannot get out whether it is a safety issue um, or a financial issue, uh, especially if you if there are kids involved, if you're a single parent, um, it can be really hard to get your own place and and with and um, keep up with life and the cost of living. Um, it's it's a very tricky situation, and I um, I think people can be very judgmental about people who stay in abusive relationships. And, you know, while my hope is that everyone can safely and effectively remove themselves from that situation, um, I think that it, it would behoove all of us to be a little bit more understanding and less judgmental about people that are, are still in them. Yeah, we all need to walk in someone else's shoes before we can actually make any kind of judgments there. And everyone has different situations. And like you said, be kind. And, yeah. and supportive. And that's really more where we all need to be as a society. And one of the things I read about this album that, that you were talking about, it was in a different interview, but I, it was poignant to me, which is that there are all types of love relationships out there. And that in traditional music, you, always, you don't always see um, a blueprint for what a non-traditional relationship should look like. And there needs to be more out, um, out there about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, I'm, I, I'm sure there are a, a number of factors at play, but, but culturally speaking, we put the most emphasis on romantic relationships. And um, we're not alone in that. You can look at the entire history of all entertainment forms. <laughs> um, and that is what people are fixated on and fascinated by. Um, and certainly in our culture, you know, monogamy is, is a big part of that. Um, or it's supposed to be a big part of that with the statistics of people not being monogamous that are supposed to be monogamous. It's like nobody's in monogamous <laughs> relationships. Um, that's, that's an exaggeration. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, I was ethically non-monogamous for uh, a little bit over a year. 
um, after my last relationship. So I, I went from this series of, of really just very unhealthy and abusive relationships to just being completely free. Um, and it was a really, really good year and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and my partner right now, he and I have been together for, um, it'll be four years this year. Um, and we've been monogamous for a while. Um, which again, it's funny because everything is like pandemic related now. And it's like, even if we didn't want to be monogamous the last two years, it's like, how do you, how do you like hook up with other people in the time of COVID? Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a very strange time to be alive. For sure. I, I told my husband, I said, thank God we like each other. Cause <laughs> that that's the only one I, I spend, spend time with. Right. <laughs> So yep. hopefully we like yep. each other. Otherwise we might kill yep. each other. But it's uh, it's really been an interesting time. And on the one hand, like I find myself so wanting to get out there and be with people and then being afraid to be with people at the same time. Yeah. And so that's yeah. opposing forces. And I'm almost I'm creeping back in and I'm trying to feel comfortable. But that just takes time because, yep. you know, for two years we've been told stay away, stay away. And now yep. it's absolutely okay get back out there you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's very uh it'll give you whiplash <laughs> for sure and you know yeah. a couple of things i wanted to bring bring up because you have a, some causes that are sort of near and dear to your heart um, one was a safe space initiative and there was another one manifest and tell me about tell me about those initiatives and what they mean to you Sure. Um, so both of those, uh, I was only one half of what was going on. Um, around the time that I started my first band, um, I was at a bar in Carborough, North Carolina, and I saw this band perform. And their front person was uh, this woman named Erica Libero. And I was so blown away by her performance. Like I made a point to meet her. Um, I caught her band like a couple more times and then, um, we became Facebook friends. And at some point, one of us messaged the other and was like, Hey, we should hang out and like get a coffee. And the first meeting that we had, um, or the first coffee that we had that turned into a meeting, um, you know, we, we both showed up with like notebooks and like, I don't usually bring notebooks to coffee with a new friend, but we just sat there and like made this whole list of um, really simple things that we felt like we could do that might have some kind of like positive change in our community. And one of the things that we discussed at that initial meeting was safe space stickers. <clears throat> and this was, I mean, I'm sure at that time, like there were other people and other organizations that were making stickers like these, like all over the place. Um, but at the time, you know, we felt like this is not something that's present in our area. And this is something like simple that we can do. Um, shortly after that meeting, um, which at that meeting, we also discussed having a local, uh, uh music festival that was like, uh, the only requirement was that all bands involved had to have at least one woman or a woman identifying member or a non-binary member. Um, so like right after we had this meeting, house bill two passed in North Carolina, um, which there were similar, you know, they call them the bathroom bills and there were similar bills going on in different places in the country at the time. Um, but I, I, you know, Erica and I were just like, this is the perfect time to do this. Um, and 
I know that uh, especially in more conservative circles and in more conservative media, um, it's it it can be an issue that's like sort of mocked, you know, just like, oh, you need a safe space. Like, and it's like, well, sometimes, yeah. Uh, and as a non-binary person, um, when I see a safe space sticker on the door of a business, um, all that does for me is it's a signal that's just like, okay, the chances of me facing discrimination in this place because of like who I am are very small. Um, so it can be, you know, it gets a bad rap, but, um, and I'm for the most part, like I could be considered straight passing. If you're a person who is trans, um, and you know, you're not passing at the time, like you could face some pretty, um, traumatizing discrimination. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, there's, there are still violent acts that are perpetrated against trans people every day in this country. Um, and, and the thing that kind of, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of things that suck about it, but one of the things that I, I have noticed is it's just like, it's always the people that are saying just like, oh, you don't need a safe space. Like, what are you like a wimp, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but you are the people that are causing the problems. (laughs) Like it does not need to be this way. Um, but yeah, I, uh, as soon as house bill two, we found out about house bill two. Um, we got stickers made up. We literally went door to door in downtown Carborough in Chapel Hill, um, started a Facebook page, um, did crowdfunding to get the cost of the stickers covered. Um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit and then we started uh, Manifest, which I think this year, obviously there was no festival last year, but this, Oct- this past October, I think was the fifth Manifest. Um, and Erica has been doing that for a while on her own now, um, just because the disarmer started touring so heavily, I couldn't be involved and I had to step back from it. Um, but she's killing it. I mean, she's she's one of the most organized people I've ever met. And, you know, she she's juggling like bands, venues, staffing, volunteers, um, sponsors, uh, food vendors like she's she's on top of it. Well, definitely let us know when that's going to be because we'll we'll promote it on Diddy TV. Sounds awesome. like a sounds like a great festival, and I love the idea of um, the stickers, safe space because um, life can be very stressful, and the last thing you want is to be just leading a normal life and feeling stressed to go into a place yep. you have to go. So hopefully, you got a lot of adoption from the community for that. And, yeah, um, yeah, it it was very well received. Um, and you know not not many opponents for sure uh but that's you know just like not to not to berate the point but like um you know the reason that these stickers exist is because there's a need for them um if i could walk into any place and never have to worry about a problem then like we wouldn't need the stickers so um yeah it's frustrating. And um, I feel like we're in a time where more and more people are feeling safe enough to come out and they're in a place in their life where it's safe for them to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it because I feel like um, I feel like it's going to have an impact. A lot of these people come from conservative families and they come from historically Republican families 
Um, and I think it, I think that it has the potential of being a a really good thing. And I mean, my my parents have been like Republican my entire life, and you know, they they use they them pronouns for me and my younger sibling, and they've come a long long way. If my parents can come a long long way, anybody's parents can come a long long way. Um, and it's just you know being being willing to be a little bit more open to experiences that aren't ours that are are not similar to our experiences. Well, hopefully we're moving towards a world where everyone can just be who they want to be and yep. be accepted for that. And um, it's 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 a beautiful album. Really enjoyed it, uh, hearing it and talking to you and. Um, we wish you the best. Hopefully you get to tour soon. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and if not, come see us in Memphis. How about that? Um, we'd love to have awesome. you down here. And um, so thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. Big thanks to Sarah Shook for joining us on Insights This Hour. Be sure to visit disarmers.com to order your copy of the band's highly anticipated new album, Night Roamer. We recommend the limited edition pressing on radiant orange vinyl, shining like the midnight sun. Produced by Grammy winner Pete Anderson, who's worked with Dwight Yoakam, KD Lang, and others, Night Roamer is a collection of 10 songs written by Sarah Shook that take a hard look at relationships, but do not claim to have one-size-fits-all answers. Check it out as soon as you can. That's disarmers.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. Most footwear brands use cheaper synthetic materials, but when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran with their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are comfy and durable, so you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.